Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Let's take an encore journey with The Lost Mitten. Once upon a time, on a cold and snowy day, a little boy set off through the forest in search of kindling for his grandmother. He dressed in his warmest winter snowsuit and put on his beautiful furry mittens that his grandmother had knitted especially for him. The snow was so deep that it was hard to find the broken twigs and branches. And so the boy dragged his sled deeper and deeper into the woods. And there he spotted a place where the woodcutter worked. He rushed ahead to the clearing and began picking up all the small pieces of kindling the woodcutter had left. But in his hurry, he never noticed that one of his beautiful mittens had dropped from the sled and fallen onto the snow. With his sled now full of kindling, the little boy headed back through the woods. But his hand felt cold. He stopped to get the mitten from the sled, but no mitten. The boy looked everywhere under each stick of kindling, below the sled and all around it, But still, no mitten. So the little boy shoved his cold hand into his pocket and started again for home. Meanwhile, the beautiful furry mitten lay upon the snow. And in a little while, a mouse came scuttling up. And when he saw the mitten, he stopped and climbed right in and said, This is where I am going to live. After a while, a frog came hopping up, and when he saw the mitten, he stopped and called out, Croak, croak, who is living in this mitten? I am Crunch Munch the Mouse, and who are you? I am Hopstop the Frog, let me in. Oh, all right, there's always room for one more, jump in. So the frog jumped in and the mouse moved over, and the two of them made their home in the mitten. After a while, a rabbit came scurrying up, and when he saw the mitten, he stopped and he called out, Hello there, who's living in this mitten? We are Crunch Munch the Mouse and Hop Stop the Frog. And who are you? I'm Fleet Feet the Rabbit. May I join you? All right, there's always room for one more. Jump in. So the rabbit jumped in and the mouse and the frog moved over and the three of them made their home in the mitten. After a while, a fox came scampering up. Yoo-hoo! Who is living in this mitten? We are Crunch Munch the Mouse, Hop Stop the Frog, and Fleet Fleet the Rabbit. And who are you? Ha <laughs> I'm Smiley Wiley the Fox, and I'm so cold. Can I come in? 
So the mouse and the frog and the rabbit moved over. There is always room for one more. Jump in. And so the fox climbed in and the four of them made their home in the mitten. After a while, a wolf came stalking up and when he saw the mitten, he stopped and he called out, Hello, friends. Who is living in this mitten? We are Crunch Munch the Mouse. Up stopped the frog. Flip feet the rabbit. And smiley while the fox. And who are you? I'm Howly Prowly the wolf. And I mean to get in. Very well. There is always room for one more. Go ahead. So the wolf climbed in, and the mouse, and the frog, and the rabbit, and the fox moved over, and the five of them made their home in the mitten. After a while, a wild boar came sauntering up. Who's living in this mitten? We are Crunch Munch the mouse. Hop, stop the frog. Fleet, fleet the rabbit. Smile, while the fox, and howl, brown of the wolf. And who are you? I am Snout Rout the boar. And I'm sure you want me to join you. Oh, dear, dear. Everybody wants to get into this mitten. You won't find it easy to get in, snout out. Never mind, I'll manage. In you go then, but don't say we didn't warn you. So the boar squeezed in and then... There were six of them in the mitten and they were so cramped that they couldn't move. By and by, with a crackling of twigs, a bear came lumbering up, and when he saw the mitten, he stopped and bellowed, Hello, good people, who's living in this mitten? We are Crunch Munch the Mouse. Hop, stop the frog. Fleet, fleet the rabbit. Smile, while the fox. Howl, the proud of the wolf. Snout, rope the boar. And who are you? Ho, 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 I'm grumbly, rumbly the bear, and though you're quite a crowd, I know you'll make room for me. How can we? We're cramped as it is. Where there's a will, there's a way. Oh, all right, edge in, but don't forget that you're not the only one. So the bear squeezed in too, and now there were seven of them inside, and they were so cramped that the fur lining began to stretch and stretch. Just then they heard a chirp, chirp, chirping sound. It was cricket. It is so cold outside, please, may I come in? Mouse, frog, rabbit, fox, wolf, boar and bear all fought. If we can get a great big bear in here, then surely we can make room for a tiny cricket. Yes, of course, there's always room for one more, they said, and they held their breaths to make room for little cricket. But now the fur lining on the mitten stretched even more. It stretched and stretched and stretched. And this time it stretched so far that the stitches holding it together broke. And the beautiful fur lined mitten burst open. Out all the creatures tumbled, and now the wind had stopped howling and the sun was peeking through the clouds, so all of them rushed back to their homes in the great woods. Only Cricket was left. He found one teeny tiny patch of the mitten and he said, 
This will make a fine home for me to wait out the winter. And that is what he did. One day, the following spring, when the little boy was playing along the path near the woods, he found a scrap from the knitted mitten. When he picked it up, he heard a voice. Chirp, chirp. Who is moving my warm home? It is only I, the little boy who lives in the house by the woods. How did you come to have this scrap of my mitten? Chirp, chirp. That is quite a story. Sit here on this stack of kindling and let me tell you what happened on a cold day last winter. Cricket hopped on the little boy's shoulder and he told the story of how the beautiful, furry mitten his grandmother had knitted for him became his home for the winter. Now, let's take a journey with The Tale of Timmy Tiptoes by Beatrix Potter. Once upon a time, there was a little, fat, comfortable grey squirrel called Timmy Tiptoes. He had a nest thatched with leaves on the top of a tall tree, and he had a little squirrel wife called Goody. Timmy Tiptoes sat out enjoying the breeze, he whisked his tail and chuckled. <laughs> Little wife Goody, the nuts are ripe. We must lay up a store for winter and spring. Goody Tiptoes was busy pushing moss under the thatch. The nest is so snug we shall be sound asleep all winter. Then we shall wake up all the thinner when there is nothing to eat in springtime, replied prudent Timothy. When Timmy and Goody Tiptoes came to the nut thicket, they found other squirrels were there already. Timmy took off his jacket and hung it on a twig. They worked away quietly by themselves. Every day they made several journeys and picked quantities of nuts. They carried them away in bags and stored them in several hollow stumps near the tree where they had built their nest. When these stumps were full, they began to empty the bags into a hole high up a tree that had belonged to a woodpecker. The nuts rattled down, down, down inside. How shall you ever get them out again? It is like a money box, said Goody. I shall be much thinner before springtime, my love, said Timmy Tiptoes, peeping into the hole. They did collect quantities because they did not lose them. Squirrels who bury their nuts in the ground lose more than half because they cannot remember the place. The most forgetful squirrel in the wood was called Silvertail. He began to dig and he could not remember. And then he dug again and found some nuts that did not belong to him. There was a fight and other squirrels began to dig the whole wood was in commotion. Unfortunately, just at this time, a flock of little birds flew by from bush to bush, searching for green caterpillars and spiders. 
there were several sorts of little birds twittering different songs. The first one sang, Who's been digging up my nuts? Who's been digging up my nuts? And another sang, Little bit of bread and no cheese, and a little bit of bread and no cheese. The squirrels followed and listened. The first little bird flew into the bush where Timmy and Goody Tiptoes were quietly tying up their bags, and it sang, Who's been digging up my nuts? Who's been digging up my nuts? Timmy Tiptoes went on with his work without replying. Indeed, the little bird did not expect an answer. It was only singing its natural song, and it meant nothing at all. But when the other squirrels heard that song, they rushed upon Timmy Tiptoes and cuffed and scratched him and upset his bag of nuts. The innocent little bird, which had caused all the mischief, flew away in a fright. Timmy rolled over and over and then turned tail and fled towards his nest, followed by a crowd of squirrels shouting, Who's been digging up my nuts? They caught him and dragged him up the very same tree where there was the little round hole, and they pushed him in. The hole was much too small for Timmy Tiptoe's figure. They squeezed him dreadfully. It was a wonder they did not break his ribs. We will leave him here till he confesses, said Silvertail. And he shouted into the hole, Who's been digging up my nuts? Timmy Tiptoes made no reply. He had tumbled down inside the tree upon half a peck of nuts belonging to himself. He lay quite stunned and still. Goody Tiptoes picked up the nut bags and went home. She made a cup of tea for Timmy, but he didn't come and didn't come. Goody Tiptoes passed a lonely and unhappy night. Next morning she ventured back to the nut bushes to look for him, but the other unkind squirrels drove her away. She wandered all over the wood calling, Timmy Tiptoes! Timmy Tiptoes! Where is Timmy Tiptoes? In the meantime, Timmy Tiptoes came to his senses. He found himself tucked up in a little moss bed, very much in the dark feeling sore. It seemed to be underground. Timmy coughed and groaned because his ribs hurt him. There was a chirpy noise and a small striped chipmunk appeared with a nightlight and hoped he felt better. It was most kind to Timmy Tiptoes. It lent him its nightcap and the house was full of provisions. The chipmunk explained that it had rained nuts at the top of the trees. <laughs> Besides, I found a few buried. It laughed and chuckled when it heard Timmy's story. While Timmy was confined to bed, it enticed him to eat quantities. But how shall I ever get out through that hole unless I thin myself? My wife will be anxious. Just another nut or two nuts. Let me crack them for you, said the chipmunk. Timmy tiptoes grew fatter and fatter. Now, Goody Tiptoes had set to work again by herself. She did not put any more nuts into the woodpecker's hole because she had always doubted how they could be got out again. She hid them under a tree root. They rattled down, down, down. 
once when Goody emptied an extra big bagful, there was a decided squeak. And next time Goody brought another bagful, a little striped chipmunk scrambled out in a hurry. It's getting perfectly full up downstairs. The sitting room is full and they are rolling along the passage. And my husband, Chippy Hacky, has run away and left me. What is the explanation of these showers of nuts? I am sure I beg your pardon. I did not know that anybody lived here, said Mrs. Goody Tiptoes. But where is Chippy Hacky? My husband, Timmy Tiptoes, has run away too. I know where Chippy is. A little bird told me, said Mrs. Chippy Hacky. She led the way to the woodpecker's tree and they listened at the hole. Down below there was a noise of nutcrackers and a fat squirrel voice and a thin squirrel voice were singing together. My little old man and I fell out. How shall we bring this matter about? Bring it about as well as you can and get you gone, you little old man. You could squeeze in through that little round hole, said Goody Tiptoes. <gasps> yes, I could, said the chipmunk, but my husband should be hacky bites. Down below there was a noise of cracking nuts and nibbling and then the fat squirrel voice and the thin squirrel voice sang For the little dum day, day, little dum dee day, little little dum day. Then Goody peeked in at the hole and called down Timmy Tiptoes! <gasps> Fie Timmy Tiptoes! And Timmy replied Is that you Goody Tiptoes? Why certainly! He came up and kissed Goody through the hole but he was so fat that he could not get out. Chippy Hacky was not too fat, but he did not want to come. He stayed down below and chuckled. And so it went on for a fortnight, till a big wind blew off the top of the tree and opened up the hole and let in the rain. Then Timmy Tiptoes came out and went home with an umbrella. But Chippy Hacky continued to camp out for another week, although it was uncomfortable. At last, a large bear came walking through the wood. Perhaps he also was looking for nuts. He seemed to be sniffing around. Chippy Hacky went home in a hurry. And when Chippy Hacky got home, he found he had caught a cold in his head and he was more uncomfortable still. And now Timmy and Goody Tiptoes keep their nut store fastened up with a little padlock. And whenever that little bird sees the chipmunks, he sings, Who's been digging up my nuts? Who's been digging up my nuts? But nobody ever answers. Now let's take a journey with The Three Dogs by the Brothers Grimm Once upon a time there was an old shepherd who had a son and a daughter Alas, the shepherd fell gravely ill and before he departed this life he said My dear children 
I am very poor, and I have nothing to leave you but this little house and my three sheep. When I am gone, you must divide these between you, but always be kind to one another, and do not quarrel over this. So after his father had died, the brother asked his sister which she would like best, the sheep or the little house, and when she had chosen the house, he said, Then I'll take the sheep and go out to seek my fortune in the wide world. He had not gone very far when he met a man followed by three black dogs. Good morning, my friend, he said. Will you exchange your sheep for my dog? What would I do with your dogs? My sheep at least feed themselves. But I should have to find food for the dogs. Ha! My dogs are not like other dogs, said the stranger. They will feed you instead of you then, and will make your fortune. The smallest one is called Salt, and will bring you food whenever you wish. The second is called Pepper, and will tear anyone to pieces who offers to hurt you. And the great big strong one is called Mustard, and is so powerful that he will break iron or steel with his teeth. The lad began to think that this was indeed a good bargain after all, but still he asked, Why do you want to exchange three such valuable animals for these three ordinary sheep? Ah, that is of no concern for you, answered the man. Take my dogs now and good luck to you. With that, he vanished, as did the three sheep, and the lad was left standing with the three dogs, wondering if he had met with a saint, or an angel, or some kind of magician. Off he went on his way. And in a little while, he met a carriage rattling along the road. The coach was black. The horses were black and the coachman and his passenger, a young girl, were also dressed from head to toe in black. The young girl was weeping bitterly. Coachman, what's the meaning of all this grief? asked the lad. At first the coachman wouldn't say anything, but when the youth pressed him, he explained that a huge dragon dwelt in the neighbourhood, and it required yearly the sacrifice of a beautiful maiden. This year the lot had fallen on the king's daughter and the whole country was filled with terrible heartache and sadness. So sorry did the lad feel for the young girl that he determined to follow the carriage and in a little while it halted at the foot of a high mountain. The girl got out and walked slowly and sadly to meet her terrible fate. The coachman shouted at the lad, Be gone! There is nothing you can do. Go back now while you can. But the lad paid no heed. When they were no more than halfway up the mountain, they heard a deafening roar. Flames shot up into the sky and down through the flames swooped. The dragon, in a blaze of fire, But the lad stood his ground, and when the dragon landed on a rock, he cried out, Pepper, show your strength. Whereupon 
Pepper leaped upon the dragon and seized it by its throat. The dragon beat his mighty wings and clung to the rock, and a fierce struggle took place. The biting and writhing and torrents of fire and smoke. But Pepper never lost his grip on the dragon's throat, and finally the dragon's struggles grew weaker and weaker until at last he rolled over, stone dead. The princess was quite overcome with terror and joy, and she fell fainting at the feet of her rescuer. Salt began to lick the princess until she was conscious once more. Pepper gobbled up the dragon's flesh and Mustard ground up his bones with his massive jaws. Very soon there was nothing left of the dragon but two of its teeth, which the lad picked up and put in his pocket. The princess was overcome with joy and gratitude. She begged the young lad to come back with her to the palace. I know my father the king will want to reward you richly for what you have done, she said. But the lad told her he wanted to see something of the world. But in three years, my lady, I will return. The princess returned to her carriage and they bid each other farewell. But as the carriage rumbled over a bridge, the coachman halted the horses suddenly (laughs) and turned round to her saying, Your rescuer has gone and doesn't thank you for your gratitude. It would be nice of you to make a poor fellow happy. Therefore, you may tell your father that it was I who killed the dragon. And if you refuse to, I will throw you into the river and no one will be any the wiser for they will think the dragon has devoured you. The poor princess had no choice but to agree to the cruel coachman's crafty plan. Everyone in the city rejoiced to see their princess safe and sound. The king embraced the coachman and said, You have not only saved the life of my child, but you have also freed the country from a terrible scourge. Therefore, it is only fitting that you should be richly rewarded. Take therefore my daughter for your wife. But as she is still so young, do not let the marriage be celebrated for another year. The coachman thanked the king for his graciousness and was then led away to be richly dressed and instructed in all the arts and graces that befitted his new position. But the poor princess wept bitterly, though she did not dare to confide her grief to anyone. When the year was over, she begged her father to delay the wedding for another year, and he granted her request. After another year passed, the princess again threw herself at her father's feet and begged so piteously for one more year that the king's heart was melted, and he yielded to her request. Much to the princess's joy, for she knew that her real rescuer would appear at the end of the third year. And so the year passed away like the other two, and the wedding day was fixed, and all the people were prepared to feast and make merry. But on the wedding day it happened that a stranger came to the town with three black dogs. He asked what the meaning of all the feasting and the fuss was, and they told him that the king's daughter 
was going to be married to the man who had slain the terrible dragon. The coachman is a liar, shouted the stranger. It was my dog that killed that dragon. But no one would listen to him, and they seized him and threw him into a cell with iron doors. While he was lying on a straw pallet, pondering mournfully on his fate, he thought he heard the low whining of his dogs outside. Then an idea dawned on him, and he called out as loudly as he could, Mustard, come to my help! And in a second, he saw the paws of his biggest dog at the window of his cell, and before he could count to two, the creature had bitten through the iron bars and stood beside him. Then they both let themselves out of the prison by the window, and the poor youth was free once more, although he felt very sad when he thought that another was to enjoy the reward that rightfully belonged to him. He felt hungry too, so he called his dog Salt and asked him to bring home some food. The faithful creature trotted off and soon returned with a table napkin full of the most delicious food, and the napkin itself was embroidered with a kingly crown. Meanwhile, the king had just seated himself at the wedding feast with all his court. When the dog appeared and licked the princess's hand, she recognised him immediately and knelt down to tie her napkin around Salt's neck. Then she plucked up her courage and told her father the whole story. The king at once sent a servant to follow the dog, and in a short time the stranger was led into the king's presence. The former coachman grew as white as a sheet when he saw the young lad, and falling on his knees he begged for mercy and forgiveness. The princess recognised her rescuer at once, and did not need the proof of the two dragon's teeth which she drew from his pocket. The coachman was thrown into a dark dungeon, and the young lad took his place at the princess's side, and this time you may be sure she did not beg for the wedding to be put off. They were married the next day, and in the midst of all this happiness and celebration, the young lad thought of his sister living alone in her poor little house. He told the princess all about her, and at once the princess insisted on sending a carriage to fetch her. The sister arrived at the palace and was given a grand welcome. Later that day, the three dogs came to the lad and they spoke to him. Our task is done. You have no more need of us. We only waited to see that you did not forget your sister in your good fortune. Now that she too is safe and loved, we must make our farewell. And with these words, the three dogs became three birds and flew away into the heavens. Let's take a journey with Grey Friars Bobby, the dog who never gave up. There are a few Scottish words here that you may not know. Bobby is a Scottish word meaning policeman. Keek just means to peek out. 
smur of rain is just a light mist of rain. Long ago, on a farm outside the city of Edinburgh, in the heart of Scotland, a wee dog began his life, nameless and loveless. His owner was a crusty farmer who cared nary a whit for man nor beast. But still the wee dog did not give up on life. Instead, he learned how to nip and yap and dodge the poke of the farmer's stick. One day the farmer read a notice in the newspaper. Dogs wanted as watchdogs for our bobbies in the city police. So the farmer sold the wee dog to a man who came by in a rickety-clickety cart. He's just what those bobbies need, the farmer told him. A feisty wee beast, aye, picking a fight and afraid of no one. Into the city the cart rattled away, while the farmer returned to work, jangling a pocket full of new coins. Here he is, my new watchdog shouted Jock Grey as he bustled into his house and halls close. Now all he needs is a name, said Jock, as the wee dog keeked out from beneath the constable's cape. <coughs> Call him Bobby, said his son. <coughs> After all now, that's his job, added Mrs Grey, a Bobby like you. So began a new life for the wee dog with a stumpy tail and stout heart. Every day the two bobbies scoured the streets for robbers, rogues and ruffians. One blast from Jock's whistle and off Bobby bolted after pickpocket or thief. No matter how long the chase, Bobby never gave up. Not until he had clamped his jaws tight around trouser cuff or petticoat hem. And no matter how long or how hard his captive shouted or shrieked or tried to shake him off, Bobby never gave up until Jock arrived with baton and handcuffs. On night patrol, Jock and Bobby made their rounds through the cemetery of Greyfriars Churchyard, called after the grey habit of the friars of St Francis, who had once lived there. Now it was a haunting ground not only for spooks and spectres, but also for the host of thieves who lurked there. Whenever Bobby caught a whiff of fear from his master, he pressed in close next to Jock's legs like a shaggy shield. Ah, you're a brave wee dog, whispered Jock. On their day off, Jock led Bobby up to Carlton Hill where the women hung their laundry away from city soot and grime. Bobby loved to romp up the heathered hill, charging at the sheets that flip-flopped on the line like merry ghosts waving in the wind. And at the end of their shift, the pair of them all was stopped for a bite to eat at Mr Trail's eating house on Candlemaker's Row. And so in this way, two winters and two summers passed. In the hush of the churchyard, or the hustle-bustle of the grass market, by the light of lantern, or the glimmer of twilight, through smur of rain or blur of fog Bobby followed in the footsteps of his master loving him with every beat of his heart and wag of his tail then one day Jock fell sick 
Bobby lay at the foot of the bed and watched. <laughs> Dr. Littlejohn came with the chink of medicine bottles and the reek of potions. But one morning Bobby awoke to an empty world. In the night, his master had died. But Bobby did not give up on life. Instead, he did what he had always done. Bobby followed his master. As the funeral procession wound its way into Greyfriars Churchyard, Bobby trotted behind. After the service, he curled up on top of the grave. At night, he lay there. The crumbled earth beneath his belly and the distant scent of his master seeping over him. The next morning, he heard the rattle of keys in the gates. No dogs allowed here, roared James Brown the gardener. Get away! Bobby did not budge. Instead, he gave a bossy bark and bared his teeth. (coughs) The gardener charged at him. Round and round the cemetery they whirled. Finally, red-faced and panting, the gardener gave up and Bobby returned to his post. That night, a horde of cats came caterwauling. At once, Bobby sprang into their midst and sent them scattering. From his cottage window, James Brown watched. Maybe one feisty wee dog is not so bad after all, he muttered. Not if he can rid us of those pesky cats. The next day he brought Bobby a bone and tossed him an old sackcloth. There you are, he said. You can bide here a while. So Bobby made a new friend as he began his new life in Grey Friars Churchyard. Night after night, beneath the moon and the stars and the heavens, Bobby lay on his master's grave. By day, he chased rabbits or scolded the schoolboys who tried to clamber over the cemetery wall. As word of Bobby spread, people came to catch a glimpse of him sitting on his master's grave. Some tried to allure him away from his post with the promise of a warm bed and a hot meal. But neither cold nor hunger were enough to make Bobby give up his vigil. At night, when the wind whipped and the rain pelted, Bobby huddled for shelter beneath the table stone beside the grave. And when the pangs of hunger gnawed at him, he learned that the boom from the cannon in the castle on the hill, the city's new time signal, meant dinner time at Mr Trail's eating house on Candlemaker's Row. Every day now, at the stroke of one, clusters of people jostled outside the churchyard to catch a glimpse of Bobby as he bounded off the grave with the boom of the gun and charged up to the eating house. There, Mr Trail always had a dish of stew or a piece of pie waiting for him. Years passed. Bobby made more friends. William Dow, a joiner. James Anderson, an upholsterer and many of the customers at the eating house. Bakers and bankers, soldiers and serving girls, all delighted at the sight of Bobby sitting on his master's grave. But there was one person who was neither a well-wisher nor an admirer. Sadie Smithers, a gossip and a busybody, had long complained about Bobby. It is a disgrace to allow a dog in a churchyard, she said. This is holy ground and no place for an animal. But no one paid her any heed until one day a new law passed requiring all dogs under penalty of death 
to have a licence and a collar. Seedy Smithers pounced at the chance to tattle on Bobby. That dog in Greyfriars Churchyard has no collar or licence, she told the police. You need to do something about him. Word spread fast. Outside Greyfriars Churchyard, the caddies, those lads who hauled water to all the houses nearby, gathered to swap their snippet of news. The police asked Mr Trail to buy Bobby a licence. He said he didn't have seven shillings to spend on a dog that doesn't even belong to him. Now it's up to the Lord Provost, but it looks as though Bobby might die. That night, a lone figure stood outside the gates of the cemetery and looked in at Bobby as he lay asleep on the grave. It was the Lord Provost himself. Is that not a holy sight? He whispered. Surely St Francis and all his friars must be smiling down on this wee dog whose love for his master reaches up to heaven itself. The next day he issued a proclamation. I hereby declare that Greyfriars Bobby belongs to all the people of Edinburgh and as Lord Provost of the city, I will buy Bobby's collar and licence. Let his love and devotion be a lesson to us all. From that day forward, Greyfriars Bobby became known and loved throughout all of Scotland and beyond. Artists came to sketch his shaggy face. News reporters came to write his story. Even Queen Victoria herself came to catch a glimpse of this wee dog with his stumpy tail and stout heart. Over the years, Bobby never wanted for food or for friends. On cold winter nights, he took shelter with James Brown or Mr Trail. On long summer days, he liked to take a dander up to the castle on the hill, where he swaggered along behind the soldiers as they marched to the skirl of the bagpipes and the beat of the drum. But he never stayed away from the churchyard for long, and he never gave up on his master, ever. Always he returned to the grave to watch and to wait with a love that gentled the world. Author's Note On January the 14th, 1872, Bobby, the Sky Terrier, died at Mr Trail's home in Keir Street. At the time of his death, Bobby was 16 years old and had kept vigil by his master's grave for 14 years. Although he could not be buried in Greyfriars Churchyard, as that was consecrated ground, he was buried in a triangular flower plot just outside and still very close to his beloved master. Bobby's dinner dish and the collar that the Lord Provost Sir William Chambers gave to Bobby in 1867 are on display in Huntley House Museum in Edinburgh. I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, 
so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story. Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas.